Welcome everybody to the uh, Legal Tech Week Journalist Roundtable for September 24th, 2021. I had to look at my little calendar over here. I couldn't remember what date it was. Uh, the time has been going by way too quickly. Uh, this is Bob Ambrogi, and this is the uh, weekly program where we talk live about the week's top stories in legal tech and innovation. And uh, uh, your panelists today, as you see them before you, I don't even know if we need to do introductions anymore, but I guess we should, uh, because who knows whether there's somebody new in the audience this week. So uh, well, there's well, also the audio version. Like, there's the also the audio live, version. Yeah, the, yeah. the millions of people who listen to the audio version might get confused. Right. So we should do True. that. Um, so let's go around and uh, Steve, why don't you kick it off? Hi, I'm Steve Embry. I uh, write the, the blog Tech Law Crossroads. I'm also chair elect of the ABA Law Practice Division for this upcoming year. And uh, Nikki. My name is Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist with my case law practice management software. We provide software for solo and small law firms. And I also am a legal technology um, writer, author, journalist. I um, write columns for Above the Law, ABA Journal, Daily Record, and I write um, weekly columns for the My Case blog as well. You should try and Articles, pick up a few more posts. publications. You don't have enough publications there. <laughs> uh, Victor. Hi everyone, my name is Victor Lee. I'm assistant managing editor for the APA Journal. Um, yeah, I don't write for nearly as many outlets for as as Nikki does, but uh, you know, we can't all we can't all be that that uh, that prolific. Yeah, well, uh, and Joe, how about you? Joe Patrice, uh, I'm the editor of Above the Law. I um, did not expect to be here today because I um, am simultaneously also, as some people know, the debate coach at West Point, and we have a tournament that just started. Uh, but as it turns out, I don't need to do anything for the first half hour of it. So uh, I thought I could hang out with you all. Perfect. Glad to have you. And uh, I thought Victoria was joining us today, but I don't see her. Uh, and Caroline, uh, I'm not sure. Zach is away, I know. So uh if uh, Victoria pops in at some point, that'll be great. But um, so, uh, Joe, since you might have to leave uh, before we get to the end, you want to kick it off today? Yeah, so I had two uh, quick things to talk about. The first of which was that uh, a few weeks ago, we had a conversation where we were I was breaking down thoughts of mine from the ILTA conference. And one of the things I talked about was ActiveNav. I, I had gotten a sense from talking to them about moving that that one of the ideas they seem to be talking about was using their technology to do different stuff uh instead of just you utilizing it in an e-discovery space like adapting it to do governance stuff uh and we had a conversation about whether or not that's kind of a a future for uh platforms generally to look for new markets to use their tech and as it turns out my guess was entirely correct uh, because as I wrote this week, they uh, announced a data mapping as a service prod, uh, platform uh, to do just base, basically just what I said that I thought they were talking about. Uh, so, I mean, I think they probably were already deep in that and I was just picking up the little tea leaves, but so that was, uh, that was an interesting legal tech development of the week. Uh, not much more to say since we already talked about it last uh, a couple times ago, but I thought that was interesting. The thing I wanted to talk about though was no real story, uh, but just an idea. You know, I when I look at all these 
vendors, you know, some vendors are run by folks who came at it from the tech space. And a lot of them, though, are, you know, former lawyers uh, who got fed up at the firm and decided now I'm going to start this platform. Uh, And it got me wondering if there's anyone out there listening who is a lawyer who uh, hates their job as a fourth year tax associate or whatever it is, and wants to get into a space, they think they have an idea uh, of how to make their job better through tech. How does one, what are I, what, what tips do we have for people wanting to do that sort of thing, wanting to make that career move? Because you know, like, I mean, do they just have to go down to the annex and learn to code or uh, are there better ways? Just call a PE firm and they'll hand them $5 million and, and they're all set. Put the word blockchain in whatever you're doing and yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Anybody have thoughts on that? I mean, there, there's yeah, I mean, a there was a book that came out a couple of years ago, Coding for Lawyers or something, uh, by a by a lawyer who basically fits exactly what you're talking about. I forget his name now, but uh, that was sort of the thesis of the book. Was I mean, he, you know, just kind of got interested in developing some legal tech applications at his own practice, as I recall, and then he ended up doing you know, learning how to code and then writing, you know, and then basically loved coding so much that he ended up leaving law practice. I don't know whether he started a company per se, but um, as I recall, he might've actually ended up going to work for Google or something off the top of my head, but, but he, but uh, you know, that was, uh, that was a pursuit that he wanted to do. Um, You know, I don't think lawyers need to, need to learn how to code in order to start a company, but I think they certainly need to know somebody who knows how to code or have some good friends who know how to code. That helps. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess it's good to have a background in it just so you know, you know what you're doing. You're not totally relying on, you know, third parties or people that, you know, may, may or may not know what they're doing. But I mean, I, I found that like the best or the most successful, you know, ventures have been lawyers who worked for a long time or at least enough time at, you know, doing their, like doing in their, in their practice area, be it litigation, be it IP, be it whatever. And then were able to the point where they're able to notice what inefficiencies there were and like what, um, what pain points there were and what areas of improvement there could be. And then, and then, and then fashion their product, um, you know, accordingly, you know, like, I mean, like, uh, um, uh, like, uh, what was it? Um, um, yeah, uh, uh, Alma's product. What was that called? Uh, 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 allegory, I think, or something. Allegory law. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Also, come up, come up, come up with a with a, with a name that like isn't you know <laughs> doesn't sound like everything else. I guess you know, like a- anything with like an R at the end or like capital letter, random capital letters or whatnot. So branding is also also a good idea as well. But like, uh, and also, uh, uh, what was uh, was it? John Tradenix, um, um Catalyst. Yeah, that, that that spun off from Holland and Knight, I think. So I mean, you know, like yeah, these are people who had worked Holland for and a Hart. long time. Holland and Hart. Holland and Holland and something. Holland um, Hart in Denver, yeah. Yeah, that's another thing. It's pronounced know. the Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, so, yeah. I mean, there are there are so many stories like that of of of. I mean, I I you know, so many of the people I talk to have launched new products are are lawyers who saw a need in their own practices that wasn't being met by anything they could buy off the shelf or that was on the market and went out and tried to develop something. I mean, somebody uh, just Horace in the chat just mentioned, you know, uh, uh, Kira uh, Doxley uh, from Haley Altman that got acquired by Latera. Uh, you know, those are just a couple of the many examples out there of that. And uh, yeah, Noah, I was, Noah was a coder, but. 
I was going to say, coming at it from maybe a little bit of a different angle, um, <clears throat> you know, if you if if my advice to people that wanted to get into this field is to to look at the type of lawyer and law firms that you're going to be marketing to, because they're different business models within the whole profession. But more importantly, is to understand the business of practicing law. I mean, how how law firms make decisions which is, a, of course, a nightmare, as we all know, particularly the larger you get. And what what appeals to the business side, uh, understanding the billable hour model and how it fits in, or the contingency fee model and how that fits in. It's really more understand, understanding kind of the, the business end of things. And what I've seen is, you know, lots of... Uh, Young lawyers start a tech company and they want to, to sell the lawyers, but they really don't have a good grasp on how law firms work and how pieces within law firms fit together and how, you know, any <laughs> in too many law firms, any one person can say no and shut the whole thing down. Uh, so it's, it's kind of understanding all that, I think, is, is important. Well, to sort of piggyback on that, but in a different direction, got to understand the business of SaaS and of tech because lawyers think that I got a, I've got a great idea. We're going to create this product. It's just going to be awesome and it's going to catch on. But typically, it doesn't matter how great your product is. You need to have people that understand how to run a SaaS business and how to scale it. And you need people that understand marketing. And um, you need a good sales team. Like you need, sometimes these companies don't want to invest in sales and marketing. Um, and sometimes the founders don't, are not cognizant of when they have sort of grown beyond their capabilities, unless they've got an MBA and unless they um, have some sort of experience running a business, a SaaS business in particular, they're gonna have a hard time scaling it because they just aren't gonna, they're gonna be out of the league after a while. And lawyers sometimes don't recognize when they're out of their league. Um, we're not the best at that. So I think that what happens is they will start a company with a good idea and gain a little bit of traction but if they don't start to recognize that they need to get some funding and invest heavily in those other parts of their business and have someone who really understands how to run the business, run it, um, they're going to kind of very quickly burn out their, through their money and some, it's not going to get off the ground. But it's only the lucky ones that do, I would suggest. <laughs> yeah, and there's, you know, there's examples of both. I mean, there's, there's plenty of examples of, of people who started legal tech companies and bootstrapped it and, and built it up uh, and, and did well up certainly up to a, up to a point. It, it's funny because I've had some conversations recently with founders of legal tech companies who, who feel that, who sort of feel this need to get outside financing because they get news attention when that happens. It's not that they need the money. You know, they, they bootstrap their companies, they're doing well, they're, they're profitable, but everybody's, all the spotlight keeps shining on the companies that are, that are, uh, raising outside funding uh, or getting VC money or PE money or whatever, um, you know, but it, it's, I mean, the other, the other thing we've seen, and I'm trying to, I, if, I wish I had thought in advance about this topic, because there are also the examples out there of lawyers who have very specific problems and they see them as problems in their practice uh, and they want to develop technology uh, to address that problem. And they do that and they want to take it to market 
but the issue is it's not really a problem for anybody else. I mean, you know, sometimes they have a, a great idea for something that's a problem for them, but that there really isn't a market for, uh, and they just don't see that. They don't do the market research in advance um, to see whether it's a viable product. On, in, in terms of what you just said, Bob, the concept of they can take it to a point um, and grow it to a point. And it's not, I feel like there's this pivotal point that with most legal tech companies, especially the ones that are founded by lawyers, where they reach that point, whatever that elusive point is, and they don't realize when they get there that maybe they need to start scaling up some other sides of the, you know, marketing and sales or bringing in someone who can run the business. Um, and it goes very well up until a point. And then if you don't make the right decisions at that point, it can definitely affect your trajectory significantly. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can say that about generally about lawyers, and, you know, because of just just even running their, even running a firm and not having anything to do with technology, it's like very often when it comes to marketing and branding and that kind of stuff, they they either it's either unseemly or it's not something that they that they that they that they like doing. Or you know, I mean, obviously there's some lawyers out there who who, who embrace it, but but by and large, it's like you know, I think I, th I think a lot of people still think of you know the guy on TV who's like, we'll get money for you, and you know the stuff like that. You know, it's just it's it's. There is still that that kind of aspect of of that being a little bit unseemly for some lawyers, or maybe just not in their wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Joe, now you have to write this all up. I, I know, right? It was, yeah. your, it was a good idea. Talk about no, it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I thought I I thought this was the right group to have thoughts on it. So. <laughs> we'll have thoughts on anything. It doesn't really matter. Um, speaking of uh, thoughts on anything, let's see, what else did we even have to talk about this week? Um, Nikki, uh, what, what did you get? What did you have this week? What do you want to talk about this week? Well, so something caught my eye. I was not here last week. Um, so this was something and that I, uh, I'm sure it was horrible without me. I bet it was. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> That's very kind though, thank you. Um, but I saw an ABA journal article that uh, caught my eye um, a little over a week ago. I'm pasting it into the chat. And essentially it talked about how California, there was a bill pending um, to permit remote court hearings through at least mid 2023, not requiring all of them to be remote, but permitting it for certain types of um, in, in civil matters. And so I, I thought that was just super interesting because you know, clearly that's through 220, uh, 2023, that's through next year, uh, through through two years. Yeah, that's significantly far out. So it's it, it's this idea that the here uh, remote appearances have really caught on. I know the judges love them. I've spoken to judges locally at the very start of the pandemic that just loved it because it helped them manage their docket. They had um, for routine court appearances, it was great. The lawyers oftentimes liked it for those routine court appearances because they didn't have to sit in court for an hour and then go sit in another court for an hour or go back and forth between courts in the courthouse. Uh, for those routine court appearances, it can be perfect. The more complex the proceeding gets, whether it's hearings, trials, um, jury trials in particular, you know, there are, are significant downfalls, especially when you're talking about criminal trials, because then you have constitutional issues in terms of the right of confrontation and that type of thing that come up. So I think that's one reason why they limit it, limited it to civil trials, but I thought it was just a really interesting um, development. And I think we're gonna see more and more of that, especially as this pandemic seems to be raging on, 
with the Delta variant, you know, the longer that we're partially remote, the longer remote is going to be, uh, the more likely remote is gonna become a part of our daily life on the other side, whatever that looks like and whatever that is. Yeah, I, 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 I actually edited that, edited that piece. That was that was Lyle Moran wrote that for us, and like he's out in California, so that was something that he something that he he picked up on. But I mean, I think one thing that was interesting about that piece was that um, you know the lawyers themselves were also pushing for were also pushing for um, this to continue at least for for the time being. And um, you know, like so so there was buy-in from the plaintiffs bar. There was buy-in from um, you know a play a. Um, um, uh, civil defense lawyers and whatnot. Really, the only the only group that like had any kind of issue with this, and and, and we talked about this before, were were the court reporters. They were like, they were a little concerned about, um, you know, obviously just the idea of like having to, um, you know, having to uh, to to to, to uh, you know to take minutes for uh, for an online hearing. Also, I think they're worried about some of the, using the use use of technology as well. You know, they're used to being able to um, have um, have a live, um, you know, hearing in front of them where they can they can you know take the notes take the notes as accurately as they can and also and also like 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 take tenor of the take tenor of the um the, the of the atmosphere around them to kind of uh, make sure that 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 they're getting as as accurate a picture as possible as easier when everyone's in front of them. So so they express some 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 a little bit of trepidation as far as as far as you know. Um, long-term uh, effects of of, uh, of sticking with online hearings and whatnot, but but ultimately, I think I think they you know took took like the middle route where it was like, okay, well, it, it, it you know it's a good it's a good thing to do for now, but you know I think they still have some concerns going forward. And one thing that that I'm seeing in the comments is like talking about Pennsylvania, and like that's actually something that we're looking at um, going forward. It's just like they um, I think uh, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, Went the went the other way, and they said that they wanted to discontinue using um, uh, Zoom Zoom hearings and whatnot. I, I I don't have details in front of me. I don't know if it's, just, if it's for all cases or just civil cases or criminal cases or whatnot. But it is interesting that that that, that, that they're moving the that, that they're moving in the opposite direction. Yeah, Ricky just put a link in the chat, but I think he just put it. It just went to hosts and panelists, not to everybody. So I don't know if Ricky wants to resend that to everybody. But it's an article on law.com about the Pennsylvania courts, I think. But I can't get it because it just law.com just told me that my free, my, I've, I've reached the limit <laughs> of my free access and I can't read it. Me too. I got yeah. the exact same thing. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's not But I'm sure surprising. it's really good. It's not terribly surprising to me what that California did this. I, <clears throat> the last few years that I practiced, I had a, several cases in California and it always amazed me maybe amazed is a strong word, but I was always a little surprised at how how often they would embrace, the courts would embrace uh, uh, audio participation by lawyers. And a lot of it was because, you know, in California, particularly Southern California and probably Northern California too, I mean, traffic is always such a nightmare and the courts are so spread out in so many different locations that it becomes you know, often impossible for a lawyer to pr to predict how long it's going to take him, him or her to get to a certain place and whether they'll be there on time. And the thing that I always noticed about it is is the judges, at least the ones I was in front of, were always very deferential to that process and always, you know, tried to make sure that the lawyers that were attending remotely were were heard and were listened to and uh, were given the sort of the same um, level of attention as those that were actually there. Uh, 
so, you know, having been accustomed to that, it's not surprising that they would be embracing the, the next piece of that, which would be to move to, to video conferencing. I think it's a great thing because it's having spent so much of my life waiting around in courtrooms, you know, to be heard on routine motions. It's just, you know, this is a whole lot better. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I've, I think I've said a couple of times in this, on this session, I do, you know, I do arbitrations in my practice still. And I, I just had one a few weeks ago where, I mean, you know, one lawyer was in Florida, one lawyer was in Colorado, witnesses were somewhere in Massachusetts, somewhere in other states, didn't matter. You know, it was just so easy to get everybody together into a hearing. And uh, it just seems like everybody likes it. So, I mean, you know, courts saying that they're going to extend it through 2023. I mean, you know, I, I think we've talked before, but I, I wonder whether we're ever going to go back, uh, like, like so many things we've talked about here, to not ever having, at least having not having some sort of a hybrid option for courts and, and trials, because uh, virtual trials just make a lot of sense in a lot of circumstances for a lot of kinds of cases and a lot of kinds of litigants. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and for witnesses and jurors. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. For, for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, having jurors, how does it, yeah, I guess that, that, that gets more complicated, I guess, but, uh, um, it, because, it, uh, you yeah. know, it does, but I think you talk about the right kind of case and you start weighing delays and all those sorts of things. I mean, um, you know, we often forget about jurors. I've, I've been called a jury degree three or four times and it is so disruptive um, to your life. I mean, not so much with me because, you know, I could, I could sit there and type on a laptop and do things and eke out a few billable hours. But, you know, for so many people, it's just totally disrupts their life and livelihoods. So, right. you know, it's, it's, uh, I, think, I think we, we as, as a profession will begin to look at, at that more and more. Maybe not every piece of a trial could be remote, but certainly some pieces could and reduce the amount of disruption. Yeah. yeah so I, I'm actually looking at the, at the, at the, at the, I was able to access it for some reason. Um, so I guess, I guess the devil's kind of in the details in this case. It's like for Pennsylvania, what happened was, um, the emergency orders had had the emergency orders have been in effect until a certain until until a certain time and they're about to expire and i guess some lawyers had pushed or some some people had pushed for them to continue the to continue those those measures which included um online trials and and and, and zoom and zoom hearings and stuff like that and so and so they didn't they didn't extend it so it was more like there was more a case where they decided not to extend certain um certain uh, measures that had been in place uh, as a result of the pandemic rather than you know, doing what California did, which was actually have a bill, like, like pass a bill to actually, um, to actually, you know, uh, to, to, to actually extend or at least put, you know, make it semi, make it semi-permanent for the next couple of years. So, uh, uh, Victor, since you were talking, why don't we can talk about what you've, what you've got to talk about this week. Uh, well, was there anything else on that topic before we move off? I'm sorry, cut, cut, cut anybody off. But, but Victor, I, I suspect you're going to talk about Katy Perry this week. <laughs> you know it wasn't as bad as a couple weeks ago when i had to listen to like limp biscuits discography um but um so, but you know the katie the katie perry uh uh the last the last album wasn't terrible i don't i don't know why it tanked her career but it did um you know i, I didn't think it was that bad but hey uh, <laughs> i'm not i'm not i'm not the target demographic i guess um but anyway yeah i i there was a bloomberg article that i saw that was interesting uh talking about how um 
you know, uh, Twitter was going to start um, adding Bitcoin tipping uh, into their capabilities, and they, they, they've already started beta testing it. Um, you know, I haven't done it yet, but um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm the right person again that would be uh, that this would be targeted to because I, you know, I don't, I don't really see why I would, I would do this. But I guess they have, um, you know, it, it, it's just it's another way to integrate blockchain into into their capabilities and whatnot. And then also like you know trying to move into NFTs, which is another thing that I'm not. I'm not so uh, sold on, you know. We, we 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 just did an article for the for the upcoming issue of the journal that looked at, you know, just NFTs in general, and like, you know, I don't know why anybody would pay money for William Shatner's X-rays uh, of his mouth or of his uh, of his nose, but I guess you know, these days people will spend money for anything, um, and so the NFT is just a way for them to um, to, to 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 further, you know integrate blockchain into the capabilities and and it does kind of i guess raise some raise some interesting methods of, of funding for them going forward ways of generating revenue ways of um you know i guess just 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 expanding expanding the use of of, of blockchain and whatnot so it, it is interesting it is an interesting development as far as what they're doing and so i am interested to see where it goes i guess i guess bitcoin tipping would be good if you're tweeting from El Salvador, but otherwise I don't know uh, how much value there is in it. I mean, I guess also like, I mean, for, for journalists, I guess I could see it, I could see it having a, having, having, having an effect because, you know, if, if people are breaking news on Twitter or if they're, um, you know, offering kind of in-depth analysis that, you know, you wouldn't get, um, you know, like, 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 like if you have like a law professor or something, or, you know, like a, like a pundit, like, you know, like a Steve Laddick or like someone like that, who's, Who's you know been able to use Twitter to um, you know really kind of um, use it as a way of like explaining the law to people yeah. and like getting them getting them to understand certain topics and like understanding like you know court cases or you know things regarding like you know you know disputes between you know branches of government or whatnot. I could see that. I could see. I, I could see people making money off that. Yeah, but why not just cash? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't even actually do they allow. I don't even know if Twitter allows cash tipping. I know they started the tipping thing sometime recently, but the way Bitcoin has been going, like, I had to go check my uh, Coinbase account here as we were talking to see how much it crashed today. <laughs> yeah, um, it, you know, it's, it's, I think it's interesting, it, and certainly there are, you know, certainly Twitter has become a a medium uh, for a number of people who are, as you say, you know, using it as a as a as a as a medium for reporting and for contributing valuable content. And uh, there was even a, a good uh, conversation a week or two ago on Twitter about just to what extent Twitter has replaced blogs in, in the legal world. Uh, yeah. And uh, I don't think it has as a blogger, but. Uh, you know, it certainly has for some people become a substitute for, for even for blogging. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it has. And, and it, it, and it's unfortunate as a blogger, uh, that that happens, but like I, it, and like blogging hasn't completely gone away, but it is annoying as a blogger to find that my, I, I will tweet something that gets hundreds of likes and the story that it's linked to, I see doesn't get opened nearly as often. <laughs> right. And I'm like, what the, just just open the thing. It, it's all there. There's jokes in there. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I do try and make it a practice of reading something before I retweet it because otherwise you, get, you might get yourself in trouble as, <laughs> as some politicians have learned over the years. Uh, if you retweet something without at least reading it or figuring out what the source is. 
the, now the they most actually action. ask you. Yeah, they actually yeah. ask you if you want to read it before you retweet it. And I'm just like, yeah. I'm just like, okay, yeah, I guess I should do that before. <laughs> which, which, which the one time it's asked me, I was Who like, I actually, Twitter asked you that? Twitter asked you. Yeah. It's like, we see you're retweeting this and you did not open the yeah. article. Are you sure about this? Yeah. Because it, it, I think they do it a lot with ones where like COVID is in the title and stuff because they, they're worried about misinformation. In this instance, it was one of the situations where I personally knew the author of the article. So I was like, yeah, no, I, I do mean to retweet this. But, uh, but no, it was really cool. Uh, that they were on top of it. They also once warned me, do you really want to send something that we will definitely ban you for? And I was like, no, I guess not. But I changed. <laughs> I, I, I have never gotten one of those. So what is this? Yeah, I haven't, gotten, I haven't got one of those either. <laughs> well, um, their, their language detector was able to detect exactly what I was calling the person in the reply. Uh, and so I changed it. And apparently the word scumstick doesn't hit it for them. So I changed it to scumstick and I was fine. Uh, but I had another uh, appellation in there that they did not like. Uh, so yeah, but they warned me and I was like, okay, cool. I, can, I, I have a thesaurus here. Let's do it. Yeah, I've never had that either. And I've also never had the warning about doing my sure I want to retweet this. I, I use TweetDeck mostly. I don't know if it's if that happens in TweetDeck too, because sometimes things that happen in no, it doesn't. Twitter don't, doesn't happen in TweetDeck. Yeah, I, so I, I've, I've, I've only used it on the- stays in TweetDeck? Yeah. Is that sort I'm, of what it is? Or what happens in TweetDeck stays in TweetDeck? I guess so. <laughs> nice. The Vegas of Twitter platforms. <laughs> yeah. It is sometimes, um, yeah. Um, and I have a suite there too, because I'm verified. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you're going to have to get a suite at the uh, upcoming. Uh, are we talking about this conference yet, Nikki? We, the, uh... we have not officially. No. Oh, okay. No. Never mind. You didn't hear it from me. <laughs> um, stay tuned for next week, though. Uh, Steve, what do you got this week? Yeah. <clears throat> Well, uh, I read an article by uh, Andrew Maloney on law.com, <clears throat> which kind of caught my eye. And he was really speculating uh, or interviewing people that were speculating about uh, what it's now going to look like as if and when we ever go back to the office. And so the gist of the article was that, that we've all sort of changed uh, quite a bit, uh, making this sort of oh, everything's going to be back to normal and we'll soon be back in the office. It'll be just like it always was, less and less uh, probable and less and less likely um, because, you know, we, we have all been traumatized, uh, for lack of a better word, <clears throat> and the expectations of people may be the same. And one of the, one of the excellent points that, that was made in the article is, that, you know, employers that want people to come back to work, whether they be lawyers or or accountants or what have you are going to have to give a reason to come back to work, to come back to the office. Um, you know, a particular meeting or a particular collaboration or, or a party or what have you. The, the notion that somebody is going to have to have to commute an hour and a half to get to an office and then do the same thing in the office that they could have done at home probably isn't going to fly much anymore. Um, and I, so I just sort of piqued my interest is, you know, I, for a long time, I was one of the people that thought, well, for better or for worse, at some point, everything will kind of go back to normal work-wise. Um, 
And the longer we've gone on, the more I'm starting to be convinced that I'm not sure it will ever go back to like it was before. Um, maybe some semblance of it. And, and you know, maybe that's that's uh, you know that's for the best. I was uh, <clears throat> following. I think sometime in the last two weeks, uh, the Broadway show Wicked reopened. Uh, in Broadway, and there was a line, as I was reading this, I was thinking about the song from Wicked. I think it's called For Good. Uh, we can't say, say that we've been changed for the better, but we've been changed for good. And it sort of made me think of that as I was reading this. It's, yeah, I mean, I don't know whether it's better or worse, but I think we've kind of crossed the Rubicon. That things have changed and that they've changed for, from this point forward. It's not gonna, not gonna be the same. So it kind of made me think a little bit differently about what work life may ultimately be like when, if and when it ever changes or if this is how we're going to be living and sort of fits and starts and normals and abnormals and what have you. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I had to go to the office for the first time in like 18 months uh, earlier this week. Uh, we had a meet, we had like a meeting um, and so I had to go in for that. And I don't know, it's just like, I used to do this. I used to do the commute every day, no problems. You know, now it's just like walking to this. Walking to the train was a chore. Sitting on the train for like an hour was a chore. Uh, walking from the train station to the office was a chore. And then like just getting there, you know, we 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 we, we have um, uh, mass requirements for uh, for indoors here in Chicago. Uh, I, I I imagine it's probably similar to most places. But like, you know, then putting on the mask on and then like. You know, if people were people were in the if people if people were in the hall, I say I, I would just I would just just out of habit I would just like you know take the long way around so I didn't have to like pass by them. You know, it was just it, it was just very like it it, it it was very weird being back. It was very weird, um, just because it's it's almost like I had been gone too long, so it just felt strange and foreign and like it was really odd. Just like even though you know it was nice seeing everybody and it was nice being there. It, it, it just it just little things like that were just like you know just really kind of weighed just really kind of weighed on me there and it was just it was it, it, it did feel very strange and very um foreign in a lot of ways uh and i imagine that'll probably be that you know i mean that'll probably be the case for a lot of people like if and when they go back but yeah it was it, it was weird yeah you know it's everybody a lot of times people say well it's great to have everybody in the office you can have these water cooler conversations that we never really had because we were all too busy billing hours with our doors closed, but kind of hard to have a water cooler conversation when, when you're not allowed to get out of your office unless absolutely necessary and you have to wear a mask the whole time you're out and then you have to scurry back in. <laughs> well, so I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't shut down our water cooler for like seven yeah, right. so, that's, that's exactly yeah. right. Where are we even going to go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's a part of me that even dreads those water cooler conversations. I mean, I feel like I've lost social skills over the past like, two <laughs> years. I, I, was, I was actually supposed to go to New York next week for a business meeting. And I was thinking to myself, like, what, what did I used to wear when I went to business meetings and, and what should I pack? And how do I do, how right. do I do this? <laughs> it's like trying to, I was, there was an interview somewhere I read this week, I think with, with Rick Steves, the travel guy talking about mm -hmm. how he had to go like for some little trip, you know, just from his home up in Seattle down to California or something. And he was, he was trying to remember how to pack for a trip. You know, it's like, <laughs> you, I, I had the same Rick, trouble. <laughs> Rick Steves, Rick Steves, I five basically. <laughs> The new show. 
<laughs> yeah, but when I had when I had the one trip that I've had, you know, I used to have like this little uh, fit leather anymore. sort of pouch with all my cords and chargers and everything in it. But but you know, over eighteen months, I've I've pilfered that many times to find something I needed. So when it came time to pack, I was it wasn't there. I had to scurry around and find it all. It took you know forty five minutes to get it all back straight. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, certainly, we're we're all changed, but I, I do tend to think, you know, we've kind of all been around these circuit, these cycles enough times as eventually things sort of get back to normal. I mean, I, I remember thinking after nine eleven, nothing would ever get back to yep. normal, and then, and then got back to, it got back to normal. So, I mean, this was that's exactly know, that, what that I was, was going to use. This was two years, but but. Uh, but I was going to use way. exactly yeah. that yeah. analogy. That's exactly yeah. what I think about all of this. And like little things will remain, but like, you know, like the Patriot Act uh, but, uh, from the first one, but um, you know, little things like that. But like the thing for me is, you know, you always used to on the subway, see those people who would wear masks in the winter. And you were always like, oh, come on. Uh, I think going forward, if I, get a cold at any point i'm gonna put a mask on because i feel like that's now socially acceptable but yeah. like that's going to be what i take from this otherwise we're all going to get back to normal real fast yeah but yeah, this is a show about legal tech and in the history of legal yeah. tech this certainly has been a turning point i mean there is no yeah. going back yeah. in the world of legal tech from what's happened from 18 months ago to now in terms of adoption and use and deployment yeah. and, and even just the flurry of, of new products, many of them, you know, uh, precipitated by the situation we find ourselves in. So that part remote, is not, not going to change. Remote, yeah. remote, yeah. yeah. Yeah, people people have grasped the advantages of, of and disadvantages, I guess, but certainly the advantages and freedom of working remotely. And that's, I don't think people are going to be willing to go back. It's to, yeah. to Victor's point that, you know, the commute, I mean, good Lord, doing that every day. And I did it for a long time. And you think, why was I doing this? What exactly was, was the logic to this? Yeah, I keep having, my point of reference keeps being, Nikki, that that Monroe County Bar Association program that I came and spoke at, Jared Curry and I came from Massachusetts up to speak at it. And that was like, what, 2019, maybe or something? It was like before the pandemic. And there were like a couple of lawyers there who were just like, you know, I'm going to my grave without technology. I'm not doing it. Forget it. Don't want, don't care. Never going to do it. And, uh, you know, I, I one I of suspect, them just bought an iPad. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right. I think you told me that. That's, it's like, you know, that that is uh, so representative of how things have changed. In, in fairness, I think he bought a Newton. So like still not quite caught up. <laughs> a Palm Pilot. Palm yeah. Pilot, yeah. <laughs> a Blackberry. <laughs> hey, lawyer, lawyers, lawyers, lawyers love Blackberry. Like, like, I, I, right? I feel like some lawyers would bring it back if, if, if they could. Yeah. Yeah. Word, per, word perfect in the Blackberry. Right? The, the, sure. In fairness, to, in all defense of the Blackberry, it's format actually was a better format for text communication it was that yep. a little bit wider than current phones and the thumbs and physical keys it was i, I give yep. them a lot of credit as a company and i feel like it, i feel sad that they got kind of crowded out because they really did put out a great product yeah i agree with that joe i mean <clears throat> for for texting and emailing it was it was a, a good product it was, really was a good product yeah. you, you couldn't you couldn't do anything else with it which was the biggest problem but <laughs> <laughs> and that's where they lost. Yeah, that's where they it lost. It was also yeah. too large for women's hands. 
if I recall. Oh, interesting. Nothing was ever made for women, even though, you know, we are the majority of the population. But don't don't get me started. I know I started this, but <laughs> don't no, get you me know, started. I, no, but that, no, that's a that's an excellent point, and probably one for a future conversation about like tech decisions that get made by men without recognizing that women have to use it. Because uh, I was I really did just a second ago say that what I liked about the BlackBerry was it was wider because I feel like I'm constrained with the current uh, right. uh, typeset. And I need that wider one. And you're like, the problem was it was too goddamn wide. And I'm like, oh, okay. Never would have well, thought even, of that. Even like, you know, basic stuff like cards. Cards are designed with male dummies that are like five, nine. And so women yeah. in, in car accidents, women are injured at like more than 50%. I think like 70, like way more often than men in serious car accidents because we're not, the cars aren't made for us. So there's nothing's really made for us. I'm used to it. And so- I shouldn't be complaining about a BlackBerry that's not even around, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> so designed by male dummies or for male dummies? Um, oh, I said I said by, but listen, you're the one that. Or, no, yeah, you you're the one. No, I said for. No, said I said for. using. Yeah. <laughs> don't put words in my mouth that I'm going to get in trouble for. <laughs> I like Dan O'Day's comment. Why don't they have cool belt clips for the iPhone? That was the the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I definitely had one of those at one point. Depends you know. on how you define cool, but okay. I know, yeah, I know. it was anti-cool, but I definitely had one at one point. Yeah, me too. I uh, I, I actually just got rid, like last year or sometime threw away my Palm Pilot that I had had. It was like a, just wow. like sitting in a drawer. I couldn't throw it away. I thought this is like, this should go mm. into the museum or something. Yeah, I still, ha and, I still uh, have mine. I could not find shelf. a museum that wanted it. So I, I got rid of it. I still have mine's the first iPhone. Nice. And I have Google Glass. <laughs> Stanley from Google Just Glass. Oh, there we go. Oh, there you go. Oh, you think that's good? It still works really well, too. That's, that, that, that's why I keep using it. Because it's like, I, See, I, I that's think one of those nice ones. You still with use like it? A, yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I still use, I, I have one even older than that. That's like not got the cool color on it, but like a big chunky black when they first introduced black ones, but I still keep it around because it has so much more storage space than the phones do. Like I really actually, and you know, that's how we ended up all signing our lives away to different streaming services. But right. I was going to say, how do you listen to Spotify on that? I uh, see. I hate it. I hate it, especially because I listen to a bunch. I listen to non-conventional music a lot, and so I, I like it. Constantly is telling me like we're going to delete your version of this because we think instead you would like to hear. Yeah. So uh, back to the topic of legal tech and stuff. Um, what were we talking about? <laughs> I don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, I just I, I didn't I actually this is like another week when I hardly wrote about anything because I've just been so busy with other stuff. But I did manage to put out a podcast, and I thought it was just worth mentioning because I, I thought it was really interesting. This guy Fred Rooney, um, who a lot of you have probably never heard of, uh, but he is the guy who basically invented the legal incubator, which has become a, a, a big thing. I mean, if, if you don't know what a legal incubator is, basically they, they tend to be programs associated with law schools. Uh, the first one he started was at uh, CUNY Law School in New York. And, uh, you know, they are programs for young lawyers. I say young, not really young, but new lawyers, people just out of law school to give them kind of a leg up and getting a practice started. They go in and they get office space, they get mentorship, they get training for usually 18 months to two years. 
Um, but the focus is on providing community-based affordable legal services, low pro bono legal services. Um, and um, he started this first one back in 2007. They've got, there's since been like some 70 of them started around uh, 60 around the country and then another 10 or so outside the US. See you, Joe. Uh, Joe, Joe has to go debate. Um, and um, what, what's, what's interesting with him is, you know, he started, he started, because he, that's going to become his career. He goes around and consults on starting these things up all around the country. And then a few years ago, uh, he decided to see if he could get a grant to go help start one in the Dominican Republic, because he, he's very flu he's fluent in Spanish and wanted to go somewhere where he could use his Spanish fluency. And he got one going there. And then now he's been doing a series of starting these legal, legal incubators um, in uh, like pa Pakistan, Bulgaria. At the point that I interviewed him a week and a half or so ago, he had just gotten back from the Gaza Strip where he was uh, starting a, an incubator to help young Palestinian lawyers uh, in, in a program funded by the United Nations. <clears throat> so it's it's I, I just think it's really interesting because it's a way to it's it's a way to both give lawyers the training that they don't get in law school, as we all know, uh, and give them that kind of initial leg up, that initial mentorship that that they need. Um, and also be addressing access to justice in a way by by getting programs going that are serving low income uh, individuals and businesses in their communities. Um, so uh, if you're not at all aware of legal incubators or of Fred Rooney, that's uh, uh, on my Law Next podcast, give it a, a, a listen. The ABA, I would mention, also has a good site where they maintain a kind of a, a, a list of uh, all the legal incubators uh, around the world. Uh, I forget what the, I should have the URL of that in front of me, and I don't. But um, and also the ABA just this year, just in uh, I think it was April or May, published a survey. Probably the was it the Legal Technology Resource Center? No, I'm not sure. I'm forgetting now who which part of the ABA published it. But uh, on on what happens to lawyers who go through these incubator programs, and in fact. A very high percentage of them, something like 90% of them do go on to start solo and small firm community based practices. So it really does provide a funnel for these lawyers to go into practicing and serving their communities in a meaningful way. So I think that was kind of innovative, even though it's something that's been around for a while. Uh, anything else? Else anybody wants to talk about? I did have something else that I posted, which I thought was, uh, let me pull it up. It was um, the fact that in um, Dallas, <laughs> I just thought it was an example of just tech competence in general on a large scale. Um, in Dallas, I'm putting it in the chat, sorry, that there were uh, 22 terabytes of police data from the criminal courts in Dallas was lost when they tried to download data from the cloud onto a disk, if I recall correctly. And initially they thought they'd lost some and then they realized they lost a lot more. And, um, and so, and, it, and approximately eight terabytes remained missing after the recovery effort. But they also discovered an additional 15 terabytes of Dallas police evidence and files 
from the city secretary's office were missing. And it included all sorts of, um, and to, they say to put it in perspective, it's the equivalent of 7,500 hours of HD video or about 6 million photos or 150 million pages of Microsoft documents. And that it included um, data that uh, photos, videos, audio and case notes from criminal cases. And um, also some, if I recall, there was like, it's like some, it was evidence, you know, there's evidence in cases. Um, and so I just thought that that was um, an interesting example of tech incompetence um, and on a, on a significant scale. <laughs> and that was pretty impactful. So that was really the main reason that I wanted to bring it up. Um, yeah, and what, how, what was it that they did? How did they lose it exactly? They were trying to download stuff from the cloud um, onto a physical drive. Um, and it was archived police files. I guess they were just, I don't know, I guess, I don't know why, I don't know why you would put it on a physical drive if it was already in the cloud. Maybe the, I, I don't know, maybe their cloud plan was too expensive. I'm not sure their storage plan, they were trying to make room instead of upgrading. I can't, it seems like a strange move to me to archive stuff onto a physical drive. Yeah, maybe maybe, maybe they were trying to free up space, you know. Maybe yeah, but cloud stuff, a cloud, um, cloud uh, storage space is really pretty reasonable these days. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I know it's a lot of terabytes, I agree, but still, that kind of surprises me. But yeah. it just seems like a big... I, I can just see some, some person sitting in their office going, you know, it's really not safe to have all this shit on the cloud. Now, we really need to get it off there. Save it someplace secure. <laughs> and boom! <laughs> Yeah, somebody just mentioned in the chat, Frank Reedy's article on aggressive sales tactics, about how aggressive sales tactics are putting off legal buyers. It's got some interest. That did get a lot of interest this week. Uh, um, and uh, maybe uh, maybe if, if, if uh, Zach uh, is back next week uh, or uh, somebody we could, uh, maybe we could talk about it a little bit. That was an interesting piece that, that, that they did. Um, but uh, otherwise we will, uh, Give you all uh, a few minutes back out of this hour and uh, look forward to seeing you all again here next week. Same time, same place. And uh, maybe with a guest, little guest speaker, if we can get that arranged. So mm -hmm. hopefully. Hopefully. Right. Good. I'm working on it. All right. Have a good, good. week. Have a good weekend, everyone. All right. Stay Bye tuned. All. Stay well. See you next week. <laughs>